I'm just going to do community go and teach, so that's the stuff there. I think every time we come to um, on a Sunday, I think we all want to say something different about the communion. We don't want to take anything away from the communion, but I think we all want to do something that somebody else hasn't said about the communion. And I don't think that's through pride, I don't think it's anything like that, but I think we always want to try and get your attention slightly different to the last person who said something about the communion. And I, I just... Well, I'm going to show you a clip in a minute, not just yet. I'm going to show you a clip in a minute. But I was opening the... If you open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1 for me. And it's probably somewhere you probably wouldn't go for the communion. But there's a few passages I just want to say briefly before I show you the, the, the clip on here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you look at verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ... Jesus, by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That struck me. The promise of life that is in Christ. And if you contemplate on that verse in me, you say, well, okay, that's life. How am I going to get life? Well, as you read through Timothy, I I went further down, and in in verse 10... The second part, well, I'll read it all, actually. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality immortality to light through the Gospel. So, to me, I gain life in Christ through the Gospel. By obeying the Gospel, I get life. Through the blood of Christ, I get life. 
Because it's through blood that is life. If we're not even if we're a Christian today, you can't survive without blood. You cannot live without the blood. But we have that blood of Christ within us if we obey the gospel. As in Second chapter, Acts chapter two, verse thirty-six to thirty-eight, you read that there. But we have life in that blood, which means we have eternal life. The world sees life as it sees us now, living and breathing and walking, and we have that life. But when we obey the gospel and we touch the blood, we have the blood, we enter into the kingdom because we are now in the kingdom. People will teach that you're not in the kingdom. If you've obeyed the gospel, you are in the kingdom today. Spirits in blood, kind of head, we are in it. Because what we've done is, as Paul says, we have the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, who abolished death, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We have life. Never, let us never forget that what we do today is a kind of tradition, but it is not a tradition. When we start to take this communion as a tradition, we've lost something. We have totally lost something. Because we are taking on board life. The life that Christ and the Father gave to us. I just want you to watch this. this. So right from the start, the church has understood that we should celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis in remembrance and honour of the Lord Jesus. The pattern of the Lord's Supper, um, eating bread and drinking wine, reflects the pattern of things in the annual Passover feast. The Lord's Supper was instituted in the middle of a Passover feast. The Passover feast was instituted by God as a memorial of redemption from captivity in Egypt. And the Lord's Supper is a memorial of redemption from sin and death through the dying, followed by the rising of Jesus our Lord. And the symbolism of eating bread and drinking wine is a symbolism of being nourished. Food and drink nourish the, uh, the body when the body is faint through hunger. A Christian who doesn't see the need regularly to be part of the fellowship celebrating the Lord's Supper is missing something really vital. The Lord said, do it. Why then? Don't you do it. The question's inescapable. I know that, the, and I expect you were listening to me also, that the Lord's Supper has been twisted in some people's understanding because of things that they believe about what the bread and the wine has turned into. I simply say... They remain bread and wine, most certainly. But as we eat the bread and in our hearts say, Lord Jesus, I take you as the bread of my life. And as we drink the wine and say in our hearts, Lord Jesus, how could I ever thank you enough for shedding your blood for my salvation? We are nourished inside. That is to say, we are strengthened, we are refreshed, 
we find new joy in our hearts and we go on our way with a new lightness in our step. That's what sharing in the Lord's Supper ought to mean. Take the Lord's Supper a bit more seriously, I beg, and you will find that this is what it does for you. It's life. It feeds you in the way that nothing else could ever feed you because it gives you eternal life. The blood. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made. Well, you made, Father, for us through Christ upon the cross, the body that was almost completely destroyed upon that cross. But you freely, freely thought the need that we needed Jesus to die for our sins. Father God, let us never, ever forget the sacrifice that you that you watched your son. Well, you turned away, actually, Father. That's another lesson. But, Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross as we partake in his bread. Amen. Let us pray for the wine. Father God, blood, life, it's a simple thing. It wasn't for you when you saw your son shed that blood upon the cross. But Father, we thank you that your son did do that for us. That we have that promise of eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us never ever forget or take it for granted the blood of Jesus. Amen. Caps go round, please let's sing Jesus' name above all names. Oh, yeah. 
Please, uh, let's stand. In a moment, Marcus is going to come and uh, share some uh, thoughts. Uh, so we're looking forward. But before he does, let's uh, sing, Come Feel My Cup. really great to be together with the Birmingham Church. My name's Marcus Overstreet, and it's an honor to be together today. And thank you so much for having us. Thank you for your partnership with the Edinburgh Church way up there in Scotland. And I'm finding that the weather here is pretty much the same as it is up there. Maybe one or two degrees warmer, and that's about it. Uh, thank you so much for welcoming our family here into the United Kingdom. It's such a privilege to be here and to be able to serve and get to know so many of our brothers and sisters and to know that we have a worldwide family of churches. And we've realized that more and more 
as we moved over here. That's my family in Edinburgh, up on the Edinburgh Castle. You've heard of this place. Uh, a wonderful landmark up there in Scotland. And that's my family, my wife Amy, and my son Nate, Charlotte, and Ella. And we're enjoying life up there. We just had to have lots and lots of layers and coats uh, moving from Miami, Florida. A lot of what I'm going to share today, you know, you may ask the question, why would you move from Miami? Why in God's name would you move from Miami, Florida to Scotland? Well, I, the lesson I'll share today, hopefully you'll get some of the picture of our, of our hearts and our crazy minds and why we would do such a thing. But we're enjoying life there. Uh, send greetings from Ben and Nicola Brady. This is where uh, their spiritual birthplace here. And they love you very, very much. I'm so thankful for the partnership that we have with them. It would not work without Ben and I becoming great friends. And uh, they have been phenomenal in welcoming us and working with us and becoming very, very good friends. That can only happen uh, in the church and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're thankful for that. That's our church, 37 strong. Uh, continue to pray for us again right there on Princess Street in the heart of the city at Edinburgh Castle. And this is just a month ago. We had a Scotland service. You can see the room is packed. That was very, very encouraging for us to have the churches in Glasgow and Edinburgh together for one worship service. The Corey and Angela Stuck from London came up and preached and we had a wonderful weekend. So continue to pray for the work, as I know you already are, of what's happening up there in Scotland. And you remember these people, you know these people. And we are very, very grateful to you uh, for sending us your best. And we really enjoyed uh, having Kenny and we had Taylor and Cameron and Al and Naomi and Hannah from London. And they came and served our church for an entire week. And just went out on campus and spread the gospel. So be praying about that. We have 30 plus names that they were able to acquire. Of men and women at the university that we are in contact with. And we're praying for great fruit from that. But again, thank you. And that's just a testament. We love our partnership with you. We're very thankful for our friendship with Mandy and with Forrest. And really this all came about from... Me calling for us to say, what can we do to, to help out with our, our campus ministry? We're, we're at zero right now. And uh, there's nowhere to go but up. Uh, so Forrest gave me quite a bit of advice. I, uh, you know, I was taking notes feverishly. But in the end, he said, why don't I just send you our best? Send you, send you some of our students. And we're very thankful for that. And we hope to have more good news from that time very, very soon. You know, Forrest had his 41st birthday on Friday. So I want to say happy birthday to him. It's good to know someone that was born in the 1970s, uh, like me. We have a, a kindred spirit there. And I, I want to share with all those in your 20s or our teenagers here today, men like Forrest and I are not old. Don't call us old. I'm going to give you the word for us. We're vintage. 
So don't use the word old with us. We are now vintage. Also, you know, we come from Miami and some of you may remember as well. I was thinking as I was here, uh, if you've been around for a while, uh, a young man from that area came here with big red hair. Uh, Joey Stearns, uh, you may remember him from a few years ago. He's doing well. He was, because we're vintage, he was in our team ministry uh, long ago that Amy and I were able to serve in. And believe it or not, that that crazy kid with big red hair now is married and has a newborn uh, and he's serving in the church in a great way. And I know he remembers fondly his time here with the Birmingham church. I did want to, because Forrest said it was okay, we are a one-year challenge site now in Edinburgh. So please see me if you're young and interested in spending a great year in Edinburgh, training for the ministry, learning, and look at this beautiful picture. This would be your walk to the university every day. You cannot beat this. That's the university. So please come. We would love your help. Spread the word if you know men and women that want to have the adventure of a lifetime. Speaking of employment. My first job at age 15. That was my title. At age 15, my first job, I was vice president of bakery sanitation and sterilization. (laughs) Euphemism, I washed the dishes in a bakery. I mopped the floors, took out the rubbish, and cleaned the toilets. But that was my self-appointed job title, as I remember back on those days. You know, we, we gravitate to job titles. When we introduce ourselves, we like to talk about our work and, and what we do. We like to be asked, what do you do? And we do find identity in our work. It gives us meaning in life. It helps us feel validated. We all have a strong sense of belonging. We want to belong to something. And many times we can look to our titles to give us security, to give us self-worth. There's something deep down inside of us that God created that craves belonging. And as Christians, I want to ask us this question. What's our title and who are we really working for? As Christians, what's our title and who are we working for? Let's find some answers in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read in verse 9. And this section of scripture, for many of us, is a very familiar passage. And as we read it today, let's not only focus on where we are in this passage, but rather who we are. Again, as Christians, what's your title and who are you really working for? What's your identity as a Christian? Here it is, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
A people for God's own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So the end of verse 9 tells us when we repent, when we are baptized into Christ, when we become Christians, God calls us out of darkness into His wonderful light. So the scripture tells us where we are if we're Christian. But that's only a piece. The Holy Spirit also tells us in this passage who we are. Now this is my residency card. It's my identity when I'm in the United Kingdom. This is very important to me. It's expensive. Forrest and I know this. It's actually quite tedious to get this. This was a prize when we were able to obtain this, when this came in the mail. My residency card. It's my identity. It was expensive. It's highly valuable. It shows, at least for now, that I belong in the UK. Now I want to show you our Christian passport. It's right here in this scripture. It's right in front of you. Your Christian passport, your true identity in this world. We see it right here. You are a child of God. You've been chosen to be a child of God. You are a bride. You are holy and pure as a child of God. You are God's possession. And if you read down in verse 11, you are a refugee in this country. You are as much an immigrant in this country as I am. And last but not least, you're an ambassador. You are an ambassador to Birmingham. It says you may declare God's praises. You are God's ambassador. So if Jesus is the Lord of your life, this is your Christian passport. This is who you are. Today we're going to focus, if you will, on one stamp in this passport. You are a people belonging to God. You are God's servant. You belong to Him. That's your title. That's who you're working for. If you want a title for the sermon today, it's simply identity. Let's look at what this identity meant to our brothers in the first century. Philippians 1.1, it says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. That's how they introduced themselves. Slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul could have said, hey, I'm Paul of Tarsus. I'm a world-renowned author of the most famous book of all time. Or, hi, brothers and sisters, this is Timothy. I'm the evangelist of one of the biggest churches going in the first century. Or you look at James chapter 1 verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, well, greetings, I'm James. I'm the brother of Jesus. The blood brother of Jesus. We have the same mom. We grew up together. 
Instead, James introduces himself about his own brother in this way. I am a slave of my master, Jesus Christ. Second Peter one, verse one, Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, not, hey, I'm Peter and I've been given the keys to the kingdom. I am the prime minister of the kingdom. So it was very common for the first century Christians to identify themselves as slaves. They belonged to Jesus. They were owned by Jesus. You know, back in those days, if you fell on hard financial times, if you had run out of options, you could choose to sell yourself as a slave to another human being. It's a horrific practice. But in those times, choosing slavery for them as a last resort could be wise. It could be logical to save your family. Because as a slave, the master was required to take care of you and your family. Now, this is not the same slavery of the Western world where generations were stolen from Africa and sold as slaves. But in biblical times, in desperation, a man could volunteer to sell himself to a master. Why? In order to survive. In order to pay back a debt. In order to give hope to his family. So as crazy as it sounds, some slaves actually loved their master and they were actually better off financially than those who were free. This year, my daughter Ella celebrated her eighth birthday. And somehow, some way, I, I don't know, I, I got this from some other brother or somewhere, I, I don't remember, but I decided several years ago, let's hold off on getting her ears pierced. I want to do that as her dad with her. So we picked her eighth birthday about a year ago, and she could not stop talking about it for a year. So a couple of months ago, we, we went to the shop together, and we had our ears pierced. And it really was a rite of passage for her. And I loved it. It was so much fun to be with her for that time. It was a special father-daughter time. And as we were leaving, she looked at me and said, I will always remember this day. Now back to what I was just talking about with God's law and how that interacts with this horrific practice of slavery. You know, God's law did not command slavery. It did not forbid slavery. But God, in His mercy, He actually instituted a law that freed all slaves and canceled all their debts after six years of service. And not only that, the law required that the master would send his former slave on his way with a generous portion of animals, food, and wine for his new life of freedom. And this is even if he hadn't paid back the debt yet. God in his mercy made this law. So under God's law, no one could be a slave for more than six years unless... The slave chose to stay with his master. 
And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 15. So at the end of six years, a slave could leave or he could choose to stay with his master. But what would happen if he chose to stay a slave with his master in that family, then it would be celebrated with an ear-piercing ceremony. So with the piercing of his ear, the slave was then marked for life as a willing, grateful servant to his master. So it, it was a vital, momentous ceremony And anyone who knew of the master or knew of the slave or or just knew them as people in the community would know that they were together. And they knew that the slave was with the master, not out of obligation, but out of love and gratitude. The servant loved the master. They could not imagine living or working with anyone else. If you're seeing the connection here, in the same way, before we belonged to Jesus, we had lives that were spiritually bankrupt. We were without hope. We were desperate. We could not survive without someone bigger and stronger to give us hope and to save us. You see, now Jesus has purchased us. Not with silver and gold, but with his own blood, as we just remembered. And like the slave that chose to stay with his master, if you're a Christian, you've been marked by Christ. And it's something much bigger than an ear piercing. God has placed his Holy Spirit inside of you. God has lowered himself to put his holiness, a piece of himself inside of you. He's deposited his Holy Spirit into your life. He's put a down payment on your new home in heaven inside of you. Eternity is bundled in your soul. So we stay with the master because we love him. And we serve the master because we love him. I must remember, you must remember, better is one day in God's courts than a thousand elsewhere. Deuteronomy 7, 6 describes your Christian passport like this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you Listen to this. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of this earth to be his people, to be his treasured possession. You are God's treasured possession. That's what he calls you. That's your identity. God's treasured possession. Now, it's important we remember that. Because it affects what we do. It affects how we live. We cannot consistently behave in ways that are different from what we believe about ourselves. Think on that. 
who we are, who we believe we are, will affect how we live and the choices we make and how we feel about those choices and whether we rejoice in those choices. We cannot consistently behave in ways that are different from what we believe about ourselves. So if we believe we're God's treasured possession, if this is our true identity, then each one of us will seek out the unique work that our master has called us to do. Have you ever thought about that? We, we talked about this Friday night when I was able to spend time with the students and the singles. God has unique work for you to do. During the different seasons of your life, it's exciting because God has different adventures waiting for you. Special work for you to do. God has amazing adventure designed specifically for each one of you. And Ephesians 3.20 tells us that this unique work is going to be immeasurably more than we could ever ask for or imagine. Think on this. God gives each one of us a license to dream. So if we embrace this identity as God's treasured possession, each one of us, for different seasons of our lives, has unique work to do for the Master. Now I do want to share this. There is work that Christians are called to do that we all do, and it's not unique. We all are called to love God and love people. That's what we have in common. Love God, love people. But that's not unique work. That's the work of every person that claims to be a Christian. And also share this. All true conversions to Christianity are not unique. There's no unique way to become a Christian. We're not given the liberty to come up with our own recipe of conversion. The Bible teaches one way to become a Christian. But all conversions, I I will say this, everyone's story is unique, but the conversion and what God commands is not. All conversions have the same basic components. And if you're here visiting today or you're making decisions about whether you want to become a Christian, I appeal to you. What are you waiting for? Make this decision. Have faith, repent, and be baptized into the name of Jesus so you can become God's treasured possession and start enjoying the ride of your life. So with that being said, I hope this excites you that, and it's a big motivation for my wife and I of why in the world are we here, is it's, it's the exciting part of our identity as Christians. We're God's possession and for all of us, not just me, but all of you. You're God's possession and he has a plan for your life, for this season of your life. The good days are not just the old days. They're now and right in front of you. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's take a closer look at this. I wanted to examine the unique work of leaders. I think it's important 
that we are matching up with one another with our expectations of one another. What's the unique work of an evangelist or a shepherd? What's the unique work that we expect of all of our leaders? We're all led by someone. And all of us are leading someone if we're a Christian. Ephesians 4.11 It was Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors or shepherds and teachers. Alright, so why do you have those type of leaders? What's their unique work? Verse 12 To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 16. From Jesus, the whole body, that's the church, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows. It grows and it builds itself up in love. How? As each part does its work. So you get a brief look at some of the unique work that happens in the church. But specifically here, the unique work of an evangelist, a shepherd, a teacher, is to prepare the church, to serve the church, and build up the church. That's the unique work of an elder, evangelist, teacher, to prepare you to prepare God's people to serve the church. So as we read earlier, your evangelist is not your priest. You're the priest. The evangelist or the elder or the shepherd, they may not even be your close friend, but that's okay. Their, their role is to equip you for your unique work to build up the church. And we do this together. We serve one another. Each part of the church does its work. Let's flip back to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, these scriptures are for everyone. Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship. We are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you catch that? As God's possession, we're recreated in Jesus For an amazing adventure that God has planned in advance for you. God has worked to you. This is even a paradox. We're saved by grace, but yet there's work to do. And that's inspiring. In advance, the master has created unique work for each one of his masterpieces to do. Each one of us... In this amazing, inspiring way, we get to partner with God. You get to partner with God to live out your own unique adventure with Him. So if we are God's possession, that means each one of us has unique work to do for the Master. Don't wait for someone else to tell you what that is. Ephesians 5.10 says, find out what pleases the Lord. 
Find out what pleases the Lord. All of you who've been baptized into Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That's powerful. It's your life. It's your dream with God to live out. This is your dream with God to join with your friends to work together to build up this church in love. And your brothers can help you. Your sisters need to help you. But ultimately, it's on you to find out what pleases the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit. Your brother or sister can't be your Holy Spirit for you. And it takes faith. It takes faith to find out what pleases the Lord. It's much harder to find out what pleases the Lord by faith than waiting for someone to tell you what to do so you don't have to own it. If you look at Hebrews 11, you know this scripture well. It's the Hall of Fame of Faith. Just as a reference, think about this. Many of you have read this many, many times. A list of men and women who took it upon themselves to find out what would please the Lord. And God gave each one of these men and women by faith unique work to do. And and if you look through that list, that Hall of Fame list of faith, one size does not fit all. And and the same for us, there's no need to try to measure up ourselves with others and what they're doing or, or steal someone else's adventure. God has given each one of you unique work to do. Think about it. In verse 7 of Hebrews 11, it's the, the story of Noah. By faith, in fear, in holy fear, Noah built an ark to save his family. How ridiculous would it be if one Sunday you came in here and we passed out hammers and nails to each one of you and said, it is your work to build an ark to save Birmingham. Here's your work for God. You must build an ark. This is now your life's work. That's that's crazy. That's Noah's unique work. Let's leave that there. And be inspired by the faith. That's Noah's unique work. Not yours, not mine. But I will ask this. Fathers... Mothers here today, by faith, what ark are you building to save your family? What's the ark that you're building to save your family, to save your household? You must discover the unique vision God has for your household to bring honor to God. For the parents in this room, only you can be the father to your child. Only you can be the mother to your child. That's your unique work. That's one of them. The church can't do that for you. That's your unique work given to you and trusted to you by God. For the singles in the room, God has given you unique work. God has given you the gift for this season in your life as described by 1 Corinthians 7. 
You have the gift of living an undivided life, an undivided devotion to God and the church. This is unique work. Don't let anyone else tell you that you must be living some other life to graduate in your Christianity. Rejoice in being single. Don't fall into the trap of wanting to live someone else's life. Do the unique, undivided work that God has called you to do. Teens, university students, God's given you unique work. At your school, on your campus, those of us that are vintage, we can't get the job done as much as you. That's you. That's your sphere of influence for this season in your life. Discover the unique work God calls you to do. And the work you did, if you've been around for a while in the church, the work you did 5, 10, 20 years ago as a Christian, that may not be the work that God has in store for you today and tomorrow. And we don't need to feel guilty about that. Let's find out what radical is today in our lives. What's the unique work that God has us in our life stage where we're at right now? God wants to partner with you because you are his possession, his treasured possession. Let's turn back to 1 Peter. We'll look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and we'll finish there. 1 Peter chapter 4. And before we read this, I do want to repeat something I shared at our devotional Friday night. In Ephesians 4, the first six verses of Ephesians 4, I mean, this is all in the context of building the church and discovering our unique work where we partner with God. We cannot forget the first six verses of Ephesians 4 where it says, be completely humble and gentle. It's speaking about our relationships in the church. And this comes right before talking about the different roles and the leadership roles and each part doing its work. Be completely humble and gentle. Bear with one another in love. And then make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is already unified. We're the ones that come in and mess it up. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the church. You know, live out your adventure. Discover your unique work. But God commands this is done in unity. There's power in unity. There's power in living out our dreams together. Unity is not thinking the same on everything. Unity is thinking together on everything. We don't think the same on everything, but we think together on everything. Here's what true unity looks like. Unity is destroying competition with others in the church. Destroying that and fighting that off in our hearts consistently. Unity is cheering one another on. Unity is cheering on another ministry in the church. Because a victory for them is a victory for your ministry. Because we're working together. Unity is cheering on other churches. Edinburgh rejoices in your baptism that's coming. A victory for you is a victory 
for us. Unity is cheering on your leaders. Even when you disagree, you take on their plans and own them as if they were your own. Because we trust God ultimately. I'm not saying be naive. I'm talking about unity. Thinking together. Unity is cheering on the Vercel family. If they do well, we all do well. If they do well, we do well in Edinburgh. It's an encouragement to us. Unity is rejoicing together. Unity is mourning together. Unity is serving the church to the benefit of others. Not yourself. You know, a non-serving Christian, this is an oxymoron. Jumbo shrimp. Oxymoron. Act naturally. Think about that one. I tell sometimes guys, you know, they're getting ready to speak or something. You're getting ready to go up and and do something and share something publicly. Bro, just act naturally. Whoa, what is that? (laughs) Or that's seriously funny. Humble American. I can say this, you cannot, (laughs) if you're being humble. Or as many of our younger generation will now say in conversation, I am literally dead. (laughs) Really? You know, a non-serving Christian, that's oxymoron. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Building the church is not a spectator sport. We can't have just armchair critics. Showing up on Sunday cannot be your only contribution. And that's, you know, showing up Sunday, that's not unique. The politicians do that. Prime ministers do that. Presidents do that. They make their appearances at church on Sundays. No one can just sit back and be the ideas guy in the church. Be the change you want to see. You are God's treasured possession. He's put these ideas in your head not to criticize, but to jump on board and be the change you want to see. We are God's treasured possession. And here's the bottom line. In everything we do, whether it's a good plan or a bad plan, everything we do, motives matter to God. Motives matter to God in everything we do. And I think Peter sums it up best here in 1 Peter 4. And as I read this, what a great vision for your church. What a great vision for the church, for the Edinburgh church. Peter says it so well. This is a vision of us coming together as God's treasured possession And teaming with God, partnering with God to do some amazing things with God. 1 Peter 4 verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. That's worth saying again. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace 
in its various forms. That's interesting. By faith, we give away the best resource we have. When we serve others with our gifts, we're giving away grace. It's the best resource God has given us. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And here it is. To Him be the glory. To Him be the glory, not us. To Him be the glory, to God be the glory, and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, thank you so much for having us here in Birmingham. Please remember, as God's treasured possession, our best days as Christians, they're right in front of us. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much, Marcus, for that. Please let's show appreciation again one more time for that. I'm a treasured possession. Let's all stand. We'll have a final song. Ancient of Days. Thank you.